Hebrews chapter 2, this morning, verses 14 to 18, Christ is the atoning priest. Many people who believe in God, and I'll kind of put God in quotes there, many people who believe in God think that they are already accepted by him. I'm good with God, they might say. I'm, uh, God's my, uh, he's my God, he's my Savior. They, they view themselves as already God's child. They have all the rights that comes with being a child of God. But what's funny about that is uh, this is a do- the doctrine of adoption. You have all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of being a child of God, but they leave that responsibility off. They'll, they'll claim all the rights and the privileges, but responsibilities, no, I can massage that. I can inform that myself. And because of all these things, they believe that they can call out to God at any time. God's at their beck and call. He's going to hear them, and hopefully he'll listen. You know, I've got to keep my, my steps right so that I'm, I'm good with the Lord. I've, I've got things right with him because if I make a misstep, if I do something wrong, then, ooh, then God might not hear me because that's how God is and that's how the gods have been. They anticipate when they die, I'm going to go to heaven because... God's a loving God. And when I go to heaven, I am looking forward to enjoying my favorite earthly activity. Is there going to be car racing in heaven? Are there going to be pets in heaven? You know, are there going to be, is there going to be fishing and hunting in heaven? Whatever that person thinks, this is the best, this is the greatest experience. It's just going to be on an infinite scale when we get to heaven. You know, where's all the focus in all this? The focus is on who? Me. What I think. What I like. What I experience. What I enjoy. And when someone imagines God as he thinks God is, that's not surprising. The focus is on themselves. What I think God is like. And who are you to say that my belief about God is wrong? But yet, put the shoe on the other foot. Try that with them. Say something like, well, you know, you say that you are this. I really believe that you are fill in the blank. Come up with something off the wall, crazy. Make them say something that they would never say. And they'd say, no, that's not true. That's a lie. That's exactly the point. God is not someone that we make into an image that we like. We must hear who God is, and we must believe what God has said about himself. So who is God? People think this about God because that's a God in their image, but who has God, what has God said he is and what he's like? He is holy. He is absolutely pure. He is entirely on a different level than us. He's the creator, and we're in creation. He's limitless, and we're limited. He is righteous. Everything he does, everything he says, everything he thinks, everything he feels is in line with his holy character. He loves holiness. He loves righteousness. And because he loves holiness and he loves righteousness, guess what his feeling, his assessment, 
His attitude is towards sin, towards wickedness. If he loves holiness and righteousness, he hates sin. He hates wickedness. And he created human beings in his image to be like him, to love holiness, to love righteousness, to have holy and righteous thoughts, holy and righteous feelings, holy and righteous affections, holy and righteous actions, to love it with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength on a human level. We can never replicate God infinitely. There's only one God. But he made human beings in his image to on a creaturely level in human form think like him, respond to him, love him, and love what he loves and hate what he hates. But is that how people are? People are not like this, are they? Are they born holy and righteous? No, they're not. Do they naturally love holiness and righteousness? No, they do not. And you know what's coming next? We're going to have a great illustration of that next week. There's going to be a bunch of little Greenfield grandchildren here. Well, five of them at least. And they're all perfect. Each is holy. Why are you laughing about my grandchildren? They're not. They're going to speak out of turn. They're going to disobey mom and dad. It's going to happen. And you might say, well, don't your kids have their kids under control? They have a sin nature, those little kids. And their parents are trying to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They are trying to bring them up in the way that they should go. Why? Because they're not going that way. Why aren't they going that way? Why didn't you and I? Why is that the case with every human being? Because we're born as sinners into this world. Could someone who isn't holy and righteous, in other words, is sinful and impure, could someone who is an enemy of God, who's twisted the truth about God, who has a God of his own understanding, do you think he's really going to be heard as a loving father as he prays to to him? No, he will not. Do you think that he will be welcomed by God just as he is, without any change, without any regret? No, he will not. There must be repentance and faith. Do you think that that kind of person thinking about heaven really will want to spend eternity with a holy and righteous God when it's not about car racing or sports or whatever fleshly indulgence it might be? He doesn't want to do that. What sinful human beings then need is what we read about here in Hebrews 2. We need someone between a holy and righteous God and we who are sinful human beings. We need a go-between. We need 
a mediator. We need someone who will represent us to God and make us right with God. We need a priest. What is a priest? Well, Hebrews tells us how Jesus is superior in every way to the old Judaistic religion. He's superior than the angels who the law came through. He's superior to Moses, who is the great prophet that we considered last week. He's superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He's superior to the Levitical sacrifices. So I want to draw your attention real quick to chapter 5. That helps us see what exactly is a priest. What's he like? What does he do? How did he get to that position? Hebrews 5, 1-4. For every high priest taken from among men, so you see there, he's from men, is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He comes from those whom he's representing. He's a man. He's appointed by God to deal with the things that Man has a problem with sin. Keep reading. Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. This is what makes Christ superior to the Aaronic priesthood of verse 3. The Aaronic priesthood, those who were descended from Aaron, they were sinners, So before they could offer sacrifices for the people, who did they have to offer sacrifices for? For themselves. And Jesus is superior in every way because he had no sin. But verse 4, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who's called by God just as Aaron was. Go back with me now to chapter 2. What is a priest? A priest represents people to God. That's a nice short definition for you. A priest represents people to God. To God. So what did Jesus Christ, Christian, what did Jesus Christ, your atoning priest, do? Number one, we see in verses 14 to 16, how Christ, our priest, effectively dealt with death. He effectively dealt with death. A couple things we need to see here. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That's your first point. He defeated the devil. Satan has absolute power over every human being. From the beginning of the human race, from almost the beginning of the human race in the Garden of Eden, mankind's existence has been under the tyranny and the despotic of Satan. Now, kids, you might be thinking, what's a tyranny? What's a despotic? Never heard those words, or maybe you've heard them, but they're just kind of way up there. Uh, A tyrannical ruler is not a dinosaur. That's Tyrannosaurus Rex. A despotic ruler, a despot, it's not a pot that you cook soup in. That's a pot, okay? So what's the idea of a tyrannical ruler? 
a despotic ruler. It is someone who has absolute control, who doesn't care about life, who looks at you for what he can get from you, keeps you under his thumb, and if you go out from under it, you're going to get smashed. A real-life example, pretty close to it, would be China right now. They have no little freedom. They have some freedom. But everywhere they go, there are cameras watching them. Their phones track them. They're told, you must do this. If you speak out, you're immediately thrown in jail. That's tyranny. That's a despot. But it doesn't hold a candle to the devil. The devil is far worse. Far worse. But through sin and death, Satan has ruthlessly and mercilessly destroyed everything that is good. He's twisted. He's maligned. He brings destruction and death. He has the power of death. Your next point there, we read here. He has the power of death. He's the one who entered sin, introduced sin into the universe. He's the one who introduced it to humanity. He's the source of sin. He's the source of death. And everyone who's born, we're going to talk about this this afternoon with virgin birth, but everyone who's born is born sinful. They're born in the realm of darkness, Colossians chapter 1 says. And Satan is their ruler. You could call Satan the king of death. That's what he is. He's the king of death, and everyone are his subjects. But Satan's defeat came by Christ's death. You've got to love the irony of what's said here. Inasmuch then, verse 14, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Here it is that through death, he would destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. There's a Puritan, I can't remember his name. He wrote a book called The Death of Death Through the Death of Christ. Isn't that a catchy title? It's a tremendous book. The Death of Death Through the Death of Christ. We read here in verse 14 how Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. He destroyed Satan and the devil. And what's meant by this word destroy is he brought an end to his power, his tyranny, his despotism. He rendered him powerless, inoperative, ineffective. You want another example of how this word is used? Write down Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, Paul is showing how the Christian is not under, not under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic law. He's been freed from it. And it says there, we have been delivered from the law. Same word used here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 of destroyed is used in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. We've been delivered. We're not under its jurisdiction. And that's what happens with believers. They are not only delivered from the jurisdiction of the law, we are delivered from the jurisdiction of the devil. He is powerless. Because Jesus paid sin's penalty in full. 
he took away the reason for death. Sin is paid in full by Jesus. So everyone who trusts in Christ, that reason for death is taken away. Remember Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is what? Death. But Jesus paid the price of sin. And so death is taken away. It's done away with. And for Christ to do that, that's what verse 14 says, he had to partake of flesh and blood. Christian, I'm taking a lot of time with this first point, but it's an important one. Jesus didn't wound Satan. He didn't cripple Satan. He didn't slow him down. He destroyed his tyrannical, despotic power. Number two, the second point. Not only did he destroy, defeat the devil, but he defanged death. He defanged death. Verse 15, he released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Many of you do not like winter. One of the ironies is one of our beloved brothers is who does not like winter is now in Alaska for a whole month. And he sent me a tremendous picture of, of uh, the snow, snowscape that he's experiencing right now, probably from a 75-degree house there in Anchorage, Alaska. You know, if you don't like winter, do you like snakes? Don't like snakes either. One of the great things about winter, no snakes. They're all hibernating. They're all sleeping. One of the great things about living in Northeast Ohio, we really don't have any venomous snakes. Now, yeah, some technically might say, there are three, I looked it up, I know, but they're very rare. They're hard to find. Now, please, one of you, don't be the smart aleck this summer. Get bit by a rattlesnake and say, see, pastor told you so. Don't do that. I know they're out there, but by and large, most snakes are harmless. They're little garden snakes. Or they're a little bigger. Snakes are good. Everybody should have a couple snakes in their house. No, we're not ready to go there, right? My daughter, not this one, tried that years ago. And for some stupid reason, we let her have a snake as a pet in the house until one morning, she came downstairs. Mom, Dad, the snake is not in the terrarium. Oh, life was not happy in the Greenfield house. Life was not happy. It's a harmless snake. What can it do to you? Have you ever held one of those little garden snakes before? Those little grass snakes? And they just kind of latch their mouth right on you? What's the response you have? I mean... Frankly, it does give you a little, oh, but it's, it's harmless. It can't really hurt me. Yet, they can't really do anything to us. But yet we have a fear of them. And then there's cobras. And those are definitely deadly. They are definitely de deadly. And you see those guys, those brave cobra chanters doing this, and you think, you are stupid. Why are you doing this? Leave. Even stupider are those who, in their worship services, take 
Mark 16, too far. And they have their snake handling services. You may have never heard about this, but they're out there. Especially down in Appalachia in the south. No, not smart. That's not smart at all. Many bravely face death. They're kind of like that cobra uh, chanter. They're kind of like that Pentecostal rattlesnake handler. Like, death is not a joke. Death is not something to glorify in, but yet they do. They have skulls with all their apparel tattooed on them. They're all dressed in black. And they think this is great. That's as foolish as playing with a king cobra. Some will even voluntarily embrace death, thinking it will bring an end to sorrow. Everyone lives with death hanging over them. Death is coming. And so because of that, people have the attitude, do what you can while you can, because this is it. It's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Live, eat, and drink, for tomorrow we die. Live it up. There's coming an end to everything. What is the cause of death? The cause of death is sin. In Christ who became a man, you could write down because of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became a man so that he who knew no sin would become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. With death's cause removed, the cause of death is sin. With it removed, death's fear is removed. Now, Christian, we still, should Jesus tarry, we still have to face physical death, don't we? We still have to face physical death. But you do not fear what will happen after death because you are spiritually alive. Your sins have been washed away. You've been given new life. You have a righteous standing before God. You are his child. He will not turn his back on you. What he began in you, he'll bring to completion until the day of Christ. And you will be immediately with Jesus Christ. Physical death is real. But the real killer is eternal death. And Christian, that's been taken care of for you. It has been taken care of for you. It's still a snake. But it's a garter snake. It's a grass snake. It's a harmless snake. It's a defanged snake. What a different tone a Christian has compared to an unbeliever. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57? When this perishable will put on the imperishable, this mortal will put on immortality. Then will come about that saying that is written, death, you remember, is swallowed up. It's gone. In what? Victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This month, next week, 
What is our focus on? Our focus is on the birth of Christ. And so we're thinking, who was that baby? That baby wrapped in strips of cloth, swaddling clothes. Who was that baby lying in a manger with all the mooing, the praying, all the things that are going on around there of the animal world, the animals in the manger? Who was that little baby born to poor parents? It was the one who would be the atoning priest. The atoning priest who, who defeated, effectively dealt with death. Number two, what else did he accomplish? Verses 17 to 18. He effectively dealt with sin. He effectively dealt with sin. We see verse 17 that he paid the penalty of sin. So he effectively dealt with sin, number one, by paying the penalty of sin. Verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we thought about sin and death. You might have thought, if it's so bad and if God's all powerful, why didn't he just put his foot down, stop Satan right then, just kind of clean the board and say, you know, everything's right. Why did Jesus have to die? The end of this verse tells you why. Propitiation. We have a couple hymns that actually have this word. But it might be one that, let's see, you've heard it, you remember it. What does that mean? What's it talking about? This verse tells us why Jesus had to die. The fundamental attribute of God is his holiness. And what I mean by fundamental attribute is it colors, characterizes, directs, and controls every other aspect, characteristic, attribute of God of who he is. Some will say God's fundamental characteristic and attribute is love. But it is not an indiscriminate love. It is a love that's directed and characterized by his holiness. It is a holy love. And a theologian of a few generations ago, he described and put it this way. God's love is like a mighty train. This is back when he had trains. That was the only, you know, that and stagecoach. It's like a mighty train, but it doesn't go wherever it wants. What happens if you have a train without track? It's not going to go anywhere, is it? It has direction that enables it to reach a destination, and those tracks are God's holiness. That is what gives God's holiness not only direction, but the motivation. He loves his holiness, and his love is a holy love. God's fundamental attribute is holiness. God made the universe, particularly humanity, to express his holiness. He made man to be holy, to love him. And to love God is to love holiness. You cannot separate the two. But because of sin, we are his enemy. And God must respond to that which is contrary to his nature. 
God sees sin and he doesn't just kind of shrug his shoulders. He doesn't just kind of, I don't really like that too much. You know things that I don't like, food-wise. Remember our brother Andy Rupert? Ask him how he feels about the University of Michigan. And you'll see that beautiful smile on his face go to. He and I have had a lot of fun over the years. I love putting University of Michigan stickers on the back of his car. He'd see it when he'd get home. Damn, why'd you do that? And he knows it's just, it's just a joke. You will never find Andy Rupert. Never find him wearing anything from Michigan. No way, not doing it. Not gonna happen. Yuck, gross. It's the state up north. It's not Michigan and all that. And there's a lot of you Buckeyes who are still caught in the lusts of your flesh and still stuck in this sin. But God can sanctify you. That's just a sport. And sports and entertainment, look it up in the dictionary, that's what sport means. It's an amusement. But when God is holy, consider sin. He has a righteous response to that. And that is wrath. He is holy. He made human beings to be holy. Human beings are sinful, and so God has wrath towards sinners. His wrath is the expression of his righteousness toward that which is not holy. And he naturally, immediately will do that. The fact that he doesn't do that to the billions of human beings now is a demonstration of his patience. The Lord is not Long, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, but he is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. But that doesn't mean God's judgment and his wrath won't be executed. It will be. So how can God save sinners? He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't pretend their sin just goes into nowhere. It has to be dealt with. That's why Jesus had to become a man. It says in verse 16, He does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. We can't deal with our sin ourselves. It'd be like washing dirty clothes with filthy water and sludge for soap. It'd be impossible. Your only hope is if God would become like us. In all things... We read here, he became like us to intercede for us as a priest and things pertaining to God. In other words, the things dealing with sin. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't die for his own sin. He had none. He was our substitute. He willingly took the response and reaction of God's righteous holiness, his wrath. He directed that. He stood in your place. That is propitiation. When God's holy wrath toward you, it's turned away by Christ's sacrifice. That is propitiation. The turning away of God's wrath from you, believer, to 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And think of this. The eternal son knew the only thing he knew in eternity past was the love of God. That's all he knew from eternity past. And you know what he then experienced on the cross because of his human nature, his human body? He who, as it were, became sin for us. He who knew nothing but God's love, he experienced God's judgment and God's wrath, and he became a curse for us. You might say, this is, are you saying the eternal infinite son suffered? No. Go back to last Sunday afternoon. We learned about the hypostatic union. Get the handout. You can learn more about that. He as the son or as, as human being experienced that. Number two. Not only did he pay the penalty of sin, but he broke the power of sin. Verse 18. He broke the power of sin. He himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He was 100% human, and so he was attacked by Satan. He was tempted by Satan, and he endured the full brunt of everything that Satan threw at him. You and I don't. We give in. Jesus never did. He experienced the full frontal attack and temptation of everything that Satan threw at him. And as priest... He not only could effectively pay the price of sin, but he broke its power. He comes to the aid. He is not under its power. He can help you. You can't be helped by someone who's experiencing the same problems you are. He could. He offers real help, Christian. I'm going to close with a few things for us to consider. Truths, some applications. The first is there is no high priest like Jesus Christ. There is no priest like the high priest, Jesus Christ. None like him. We read last Sunday in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. Every other human being who says they're a priest, they are an imposter. They are a charlatan. They are pretenders. They are phonies. They are frauds. They are false. They are ineffective. They are powerless. But Jesus, your high priest, he is the only one. He's the real deal. He's the one who effectively deals with sin. A second truth for us to apply or see here, that good works can never save you from sin and death. Good works can never save you from sin and death. Does this mean good works aren't important? I didn't say that. <laughs> if you have trusted Christ, if you do have new life, it will be seen, evidenced, on display in your good works. But those good works that you do, they're never, they're never the reason why you're right with God. Now, how long does that word never last for? Do you follow my, what I said there? How long does never last? Never lasts forever. Ooh, this sounds opposite here, okay? What am I getting at? Christian, were you saved because of your good works? No. Is it possible that you as a Christian 
You could think because of sin that you do as a believer somehow puts you on a lower pedestal with the Lord. Boy, I need to do something to make myself right with God. I just feel really guilty. You know, if you sin, you should feel guilty. There should be remorse. There must be repentance. There should be confession. But your expectation of being heard by God and being received by God is not because of what you do. It's because of who Jesus is and what Christ has done. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of Christ's righteousness, your high priest, there is one mediator between God and man. Who's that? The man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. His work, his priesthood, all you need. A third point of application, because of who Jesus is as our high priest, this is why Roman Catholic teaching is so abominable. That is why it is so abominable. I say, Pastor, you're going too far now. Let me give you three reasons why it's abominable. They believe that every time that the Mass is celebrated, that Christ's sacrifice is being repeated. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross is insufficient. What do you think of that, Christian? I say read Hebrews. Or read how one time he suffered on the cross. A second reason why it's so abominable is their concept of the priesthood. They say that their earthly church priests are essential for you to come to the Lord, to be heard by him and to be accepted by him. They are saying that Christ's priesthood is insufficient and that is abominable. A third reason, and we could go with many more, but just three. First is his sacrifice and his cross. The second is his priesthood. The third, if you're a faithful Catholic, let me back up. Catholic doctrine says that you need to be sprinkled with water so that original sin is washed away. You're brought into the church. And then from there on, it's you and the church and the priesthood and the sacraments for the rest of your life. You need to walk through all those sacraments. You need to live good. The slate was cleaned through that sprinkling that they call baptism. And you need to earn the works necessary to be accepted by God. And that's the third reason why it's so abominable. Because they believe that your personal works are necessary for your salvation. And they say that Christ's work is insufficient. We have had folks disagree with us, not members of our church. We have had folks say, who are you to say Roman Catholic teaching is wrong? And we have to say, well, the Lord Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
The Lord Jesus said, not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but by grace through faith. The Lord Jesus said that he is the, the, the only mediator, the only way. He said these things. It should pain us when we see friends, co-workers, loved ones blinded by Roman Catholicism. Do not have a spirit of superiority over them. They're blinded. They deserve, they call for your pity, your mercy, your compassion. And how can you show that to them? By telling them of the Savior. By pointing them to Christ. By teaching them from Scripture how one can be born again. One last point of application for today. Christian, always look to Christ for help and temptation. Always look to Christ, only to Jesus, your great high priest, for help and temptation. If you say, I really, you, you might say you're not really tempted that much. Oh boy. Red lights need to be going off right away. You have a sin nature. You live in Satan's world. I mean, we're bombarded. We've got it all around us and in us. Oh Lord, that's something you need to pray for and ask for God's help with. How do you deal with temptation and sin now? You must look to the Lord and constantly be praying to him, Lord, help me to love holiness. Lord, help me to love righteousness. Help me to, uh, in my mind, in my heart, in my actions, in my life. And when I sin, help me to repent of that. Help me to trust you. Give me the strength. And remember, you have a great high priest who lived on this earth, who experienced human life. And that high priest, he's always listening. And not only is he always listening to your prayers, he's always praying for you, Christian. Praying that you would not fail. Praying that you would persevere. What a great high priest we have.